0: Summit 2010, singer-actor Alex Johnson, slam poet Jamie DeWolf, and a next installment of the Folk Festival series Jeremy Fisher and Said the Whale. Hello and welcome to the Arts Report for June the 30th. I'm Adam Janusz, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM or online at citr.ca. I never think I'm going to make it uh, to the end of the intro music, but then somehow I do. Um, yeah, so um, here we are, another episode. It's, um, we're going to have um, uh, a, a great show for you, including um, not only an interview, but a performance with Alex Johnson for her uh, new disc called Voodoo. She came to our studio and, uh, and did a, uh, a lovely performance. And we'll also talk to uh, Jamie DeWolf, who is not only a slam poet, but is also the great grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, the uh, creator and founder and guru of uh, Scientology. And he has a lot to say about Scientology. And um, so we have a, a, quite a long interview with him um, on the show today. But first, we'll be talking about Arts Summit 2010. Uh, This was held uh, just Thursday and Friday of last week, and it was the Alliance for Arts and Culture. And they were putting on the Arts Summit 2010, uh, bringing together a diverse group of artists, arts organizations, presenters, facility managers, students, businesses, and government representatives uh, to have um, a dialogue opportunities, creating opportunities for dialogue, networking, and professional development. And our contributor, Brenda Gruno was there, and she's here to tell us about it. Hello, Brenda. Hi, Adam. How you doing? Great. Awesome. So to begin, what, um, what was this Arts Summit all about?
1: Well, it was an excuse for arts practitioners and policymakers to get together and talk about different issues affecting arts and culture.
0: And um, tell us about some of the things that, um, some of the sessions that uh, went on.
1: Sure. There was a whole variety of stuff. It was covered two days. Different topics included civic leadership, uh, municipal and provincial arts policy. Uh, One was called Shaping a Literate Financial Statement. I went to that one, but I'm sure you don't want to hear about it. Uh, Different things about Canadian culture days, public art, art and social change, and uh, cultural assets and infrastructure.
0: Cool. And um, tell us about some of the the key themes. The, uh, the keynote speaker was...
1: Arlene Goldberg.
0: Right. And what were some of the main things that, uh, that she covered?
1: Uh, she talked primarily... Sorry, uh, it was Arlene Goldbard. She talked primarily about arts advocacy, and how public funding has been declining for years and our arguments are seemingly ineffective so the discussion was about how can we communicate to the general public and to government about why arts and culture is important and why we should receive funding
2: cool
0: and um, take us through some of the some of the, the main uh, themes
1: sure basically since economic arguments that we've been using don't seem to be effective and uh... We've spent so much time basically making business cases about why arts and culture are important, trying to sort of speak the language of policy and economic econ- economists, and using that as arguments, but they, they're not working. So even though arts budgets are such tiny, tiny amounts of provincial budgets, they still get slashed and burned. And Arlene was saying that it's not really about slimming the budget, but more about making a sign that they're serious about cutting the budget and arts go first, even though we're such a small piece and even though we have such strong arguments to suggest that investing in arts and culture actually has this multiplying effect in the economy.
0: So, for example, here in B.C., the arts cuts, what she was saying then is that it's less motivated to actually save money and more just to sort of uh, make a statement to, I guess, liberal sort of stakeholders and saying, look, we're cutting things, but actually it doesn't make much of a difference to their bottom line. Exactly. How sad is that?
1: It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad that we're the first to go.
0: Yeah. All right. What else?
1: Yeah. So she talked about how, how can we communicate the value of arts differently and how people respond to stories and metaphors and emotion and these are the things we've actually been avoiding because we thought it wouldn't reach out to people but she argued that they're actually what people respond to most effectively she she discussed how the biggest problem in our society is how it's, it's not placing value on the right things about how bottom lines are more important than quality of life and, and healthy societies and how we need to Uh, Tell people about how arts make such an impact on the health of your neighborhood and the health of the relationships in in our society And how this is the value that arts and culture brings and not the economic impact
0: So rather than talking about uh, GDP and profits and all that kind of stuff, just to bring it back to actually the value for people
1: Yeah, and she talked about so much of art and what we do in the arts sector, sector is about telling stories and engaging people's imagination. And so we should be using those tools to reach out to people. Mm. And another thing she went on to talk about is different frames or perspectives that we fight when we're advocating for funding. So when when you talk to to people not in the sector about arts and culture, you get sort of answers like, well, my my Billy can do it, you know. oh, well, my son can make art, or anyone can make art. It's just a hobby. It's not a real job. Or I can't relate because I'm not good at art. Or I can't afford ticket prices when, in fact, in effect, um, arts and culture is relatively cheap most of the time, and people participate in free street parties and all these things all the time. But there's this sort of barrier that the arts are expensive and elitism.
0: So Right, and so there's this feeling that it's... It's sort of this feeling of elitism. It's like that that people can't, they feel like they can't, that that they're not welcome. Is that kind of
1: what it is? Yeah, I think that they they don't belong, they Mm. can't participate, and it's not for them. Mm. Whereas I think most artists would say, like, this is just part of the fabric of life, and and you're doing artistic things all the time. You're being creative all the time in your everyday life. Why do you think of um, art as having to be in a gallery that's expensive and only for rich people?
3: Hmm.
0: And I understand that uh, another uh, side of this, another problem, is the way the media uh, talks about arts.
1: Yes, and hopefully we're doing a different job right here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was a whole group discussion about how the media portrays art as a business and only talks about sort of funding or how much a donor gave or how much an artist made or how much a festival cost. Mm-hmm. And so it's all business-oriented or how much a film star made. Um, another theme is art as play. So art is just about, you know, the cute little kids um, dabbing their faces in paint kind Mm. of thing, how it's not a serious thing, it's not a real job. Um, The third thing was art's really dangerous. It's uh, the whole censorship fear and, oh, do we want to be supporting those Canadian films that are so kinky? You know, is that something we should be into? And then also the like, Art is an Exclusive Club. It's for rich people that um, give tons of money so they can go to elite openings.
4: Hmm.
0: All right. Now, so you were at, uh, at the summit, and you, uh, you brought us a, a lovely clip. Uh, and this one features Amir Ali Alibai, who is the executive director of the Alliance for the Arts and Culture. And uh, we'll play you uh, a clip of that. Here it comes.
1: This is Brenda with the arts report on CITR, covering the 2010 arts summit. I'm here with Amir Ali Alabaif, the executive director of the Alliance for Arts and Culture. And I was wondering, given the current funding climate, how is the alliance changing its strategy? Another way of saying it could be, how do you redefine advocacy when uh, government lobbying doesn't seem to be working?
4: Well, I think that we have to not give up on government lobbying and uh, and that a long-term strategy is required. And it's about developing a relationship and making sure that uh, people who are making decisions have the information they need to make good decisions. And, um, you know, I, I also think that the purpose of this summit, for instance, is for us to, uh, to allow us an opportunity to think about different ways in which we can we can talk uh, you know different language we can use to talk about the arts and their value because we've tended to focus and use the language of the corporate sector and of um, economists and and scientists when really we're talking about the arts and so for us to be able to articulate what's inherently valuable about the arts and why it's important to people and it's you know uh, arts and culture and of course that can be defined in so many different ways that it has the capacity to include a great deal of diversity and so we can deal with a, with, with uh, uh, the fact that advocacy in different communities may take different forms because of our diversity. So those are some of the questions that we're asking ourselves at the summit as we move forward. We certainly are looking long-term and trying to work um, in a unified manner uh, across the province between urban and rural communities and um, making sure that we're meeting and communicating with our MLAs regardless of what political party they belong to.
1: The arts community tends to have a sort of similar groupthink and a similar language in terms of reference. How can we get past these internal roadblocks?
4: Well, I think that being afraid to speak what we know to be true about what it is we do, that it's important for the spirit, it, that the arts address the whole human being, that it's about love, you know, those are words that get expunged from our formal vocabulary. And, and I think that, that some of those obstacles that we face are really about our own ability to be um, open and communicative about what it is we do and so we can seem to be aloof or snobbish or not connected to the rest of society when in fact we are people and we have families and we have jobs and we live in communities and and sort of to 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 try and dispel some of that that's certainly a challenge i think that we have facing
1: okay well thanks very much
4: okay thank you
0: So that was uh, Amir Ali Alibai, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance for Arts and Culture. So, Brenda, what are um, some solutions? What are a couple of ways that artists and arts organizations can move forward?
1: Well, we discussed some of those at the Arts Summit. Uh, One example was how the arts usually highlight someone who's been impacted by arts and culture. So, for example, the kid from the low-income family who got involved in art instead of drug dealing and is now an artist and it changed their life. So, about connecting those stories with the cultural policy, because usually people think, oh, that's so great think of that one kid, and what we need to do is go from, well, think of all the other kids that we could impact if we had cultural policy that supported this kind of social change within your neighbourhood and within your society. So making sure we connect the the specific to the to the broad, the higher-level idea. Um, another idea was searching for stories and images that capture the public interest. And uh, a third idea that um, Arlene Goldberg, Goldbard uh, suggested was she really lauded the uh, the Canadian framework where, uh, where Canadian content in television and music was supported by the commercial sector. So she talked about one way is to have a, say an advertising tax that would support not-for-profit arts. So different ways of making the cultural sector support itself so that the profit-making areas of arts and culture support the non-profit making Enterprises.
0: Great. All right. Well, uh, thanks for covering the uh, Art Summit 2010 and uh, for telling us about it here live in studio.
1: Great. Thanks, Adam.
0: All right. We'll be right back. And uh, after the break, we will have an interview with Alex Johnson.
1: Strength, dignity, respect, beauty, self worth, safety, confidence. Choice Hope Hope. Beauty Night Society is a registered charity dedicated to helping marginalized women introduce trust, hope, and self-esteem into their lives. Through its popular makeover program, the Beauty Night Society has touched the lives of thousands and reintroduced a healthy touch to the lives of vulnerable women throughout British Columbia,
3: creating real life
1: makeovers. Please visit www.beautynight.org for information on programs and on how to help. Beauty Night, because,
3: because dignity, dignity is beautiful. I think I was blind before I met you. All
0: right, and we're back here on the Arts Report. Alex Johnson. At the age of 11, she was singing the national anthem and was called the West Coast Celine, as in Celine Dion. Then she had her own show. She was the star of uh, Instant Star on CTV. And then that show was canceled. And then she had a record deal, a major record deal. And then that uh, became uh, nixed as well. But none of that has stopped Alex Johnson. And so she has decided to to go the independent route and um, to come out with her own album, uh, major record label or no major record label. And uh, she's done it. She's come out with her new CD called Voodoo. And she came in studio to uh, tell us about the disc and tell us about the, the challenges that go hand-in-hand hand with... Um, not having major label support and skating the fine line between um, your own independent voice versus what the mainstream demands. And um, so here is our interview, and then we'll also have a song, uh, an acoustic performance uh, later on in the show. All right. So, Alex, welcome to uh, the studio.
5: Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell me about
0: uh, Voodoo. What is it?
5: Voodoo is um, basically... Uh, my first opportunity to get my songs out there to get my music out there. Um, what's been so cool about this record is that it really is the kind of music that we want to make, and there was nobody having an opinion or telling us what to change or lyrically what to change or vocally, and it's just a true reflection of you know of the music inside of me at the time when we did this album.
0: Tell me about um, a little more about what's gained by being more indie um because for example like you were on instant star Mm -hmm. and that had a certain sound right a certain upbeat kind of thing and and then if you're with a major label there there are certain demands in terms of the sound that they want Mm -hmm. what do you gain by by not having those pressures
5: on you you know with this to be honest i never felt legitimate um you know brendan and i wrote a lot of the songs for instant star and that was separate from me so that was cool and, I mean, it financially it was great because everything, you know, just basically went back into the music that we wanted to make. But I think it's, it's different for everybody. But for me, it was just a sense I never felt legitimate. Even when I was signed with major labels, I'd look at people and I just felt like it was never... Um, because, you know, when you have your own sound as an artist and you have a real, true idea of what you want to do, it's really hard to have so many cooks in the kitchen. And I remember I'd go, like, Beat Red, like, people would be like, oh, my gosh, you're an artist signed with Sony in the U.S., and they're flying you all over the world, and I'm thinking I feel like such a douchebag because <laughs> I just know they're going to screw me over. You right. know, you just feel like they're so unstable. So a confidence, being able to just, like, you know, you're not making as much, you're struggling, but if it's like you're doing what you want to do, mm-hmm. and that's huge. So integrity and confidence is probably... Um, what it gives you.
0: Cool. I'm looking at the um, the CD, the arts and the the website, and it's got a very kind of old Hollywood, Indiana Jones mm-hmm. kind of Casablanca kind of vibe. Um, yeah. Is that? Does that also carry on in the music? There's also a bit of a sort of old school vibe
5: in the music. Yeah, there is. We tried. Um, we wanted each song to kind of cohesively. We wanted it to sound like um, a, like a whole and sound like the same artist, but in each song we kind of want to take you to a different place so there's like this kind of western like Clint Eastwood film sounding track mm-hmm. and um there's like a Mr. Jones which sounds kind of like 1930s like film noir so it's very a lot of the songs sound very cinematic to me so that's why I kind of wanted to bring in the uh like the movie theme
0: and tell me about um what's next you've got some um,
5: mm-hmm.
0: exciting performances and events yeah
5: um so, yeah, after doing this uh, this album, we thought, because it's indie, and we kind of wanted to build in Canada and just kind of let it do its thing. Um, there's been some interest in from, actually, I, I did a show, I did North by Northeast um, last week, and uh, Nelly Furtado came with her husband, and he's doing, his name's Demo, Kas- Castilian? Demo in the industry. <laughs> um, but he's doing remixes of Voodoo and Trip Around the World because the production of, the songs is just very um, it's very very indie sounding and people seem to be you know finding this album and wanting to bring the songs you know to, to a standard that you know because radio is such a sound right now like a lot of songs on radio I feel like have a a format that they fit but I still think if the songs are different enough and and um, you know even I guess the word would be indie enough. It can still work on on major radio, and you know, Brennan and I we do love pop music, and we're not afraid of of mainstream radio. So that sounds good to us. And if he wants to take them and do some remixes, and awesome. And I heard a couple tracks actually the other night, and Voodoo sounds it sounds great. I mean, it sounds awesome. It sounds like something that um, I'm just excited. So it looks like we might be putting that out as our second single. Um, but I'll have to keep you posted because at this point, there's just a lot of cool things that. A lot of doors seem to be opening just from doing what we wanted to do musically.
0: Yeah. Do you think that the, that you have to sort of skate a line between indie and mainstream? That there's a certain, like you say, a certain formula that you need to sort of um, nail to, yeah. to get on, the, on, on pop radio?
5: Big time. I'm not going to pretend to say that I know how. I've never had a hit on pop radio before. Yeah. Um, I know the music I like to make as an artist, but I'm not afraid of major radio. I mean at the end of the day, I do want to sell records and have a you know get my music out there um I don't think it's anything to be afraid of um either way, I'd be happy no matter what, but when opportunities like that happen, you know um I don't want to I don't want my artistic you know personality to get in the way and go, no, I'm not doing it again. you know, I just feel like even with major labels, I just think that you have to pay your dues, you really have to like you got to, you know, if you start looking at the stories of these artists that people respect so much, they didn't just become that overnight, you know. It takes, you really got to sculpt what you want to do. Uh,
0: on the CD, um, there's you as well as Brendan in the, in the back. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your partnership, your artistic partnership? It, sounds, yeah. it seems almost like it is a very much a partnership.
5: It is, yeah. It's, um, we just, we started writing, you know, um, I guess I was about 12 years old. And, Brendan, how old would you have been?
2: Oh, seventeen, Brim was about 17,
5: yeah, yeah, Brim was about yeah seventeen eighteen, and uh we just kind of developed this sound, like I feel like you know I always I had this big voice when I was younger, and people automatically just pegged, they would you know want me to sing these big. Ballad, well, they called you the West
3: Coast Celine. did you not?
5: there you go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was the anthem girl. I was like the Celine Dion, and I was like it, it wasn't really, you know, i i had I had my own ideas of the music I wanted to make. And I was working with a lot of producers when I was younger. And then Brendan got into production and started just doing music all the time, and he was drumming in a band and and um, and then we just started writing. And Brendan, you know, um, was kind of the only producer who knew me well enough where I could be comfortable enough to really bring out all those quirks and all that weird like 80s like just this kind of bizarre sound that he was kind of tapping into because he wasn't, you know, automatically having an idea of what my vocals should be doing as a vocalist. It was more just about the sound and the the style of the music, not just about this girl who has a big voice, let's sing some kind of, you know, massive song which just you know can get it's it's, having a big voice it's like i don't want to do that ballad i don't want that so we started writing and um you know we got attention with some demos that we did um with capital and we went to new york and did a showcase and there was like a bunch of interest from labels and it was all based on the music that me and bren wrote and then we signed with epic sony and did a full album and you know this is taking years to do this i feel like we spent so much time in the studio just recording and then that got taken away because the head of the label got fired and so we just thought you know what we're just gonna we're gonna go back to square one and go into our studio and um and really hammer out like an album and take all the pain and it's like there's so many highs and lows and you get kicked down so much in this business and what I love about this record is that there's nothing about it that's resentful or coming from a place of like you screwed us over it really <laughs> is you know it's like a fire in the belly it's like you know you think no 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 no, just wait you know because we're not going to stop so it's kind of been like a rebirth this record in a way emotionally for me anyways but yeah and I just love making music with Bren I think he's a super talented producer and his influences are, you know, really old-school, and stuff that I like sometimes is a bit more new wave at times, and us together, it just creates a really cool sound. Great.
0: Well, best mm-hmm. of luck with the disc. No, thank you. All right, and now before we go to the break, we'll play a little bit of Trip Around the World by Alex Johnson. Uh, by the way, I should add that um, Alex has a massive um, following that um, follows her on uh, on Twitter and um and just basically wherever whatever appearance she makes, whatever thing she does, uh, she's got a great uh, fan base that uh, goes with her wherever she goes. And um, we've had many calls to the station today uh, from all over the world, including Texas, asking, when will Alex be on the show? So I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed. Here's a bit of a trip around the world. You should check out um, uh, Alex's uh, MySpace page, if you haven't. MySpace.com slash Alex Johnson. It's Alex and then a Zed Johnson. Um, and uh, here it is. We'll be right back.
3: Let's take a trip around the world today In the backseat rolling down Shady Lane Let's take a trip around the world today The money, the money is getting in the way Any way you look at it, it's looking at your face Standing in line on the wind today You're pushing it along, it's pushing you away I won't forget. Up <laughs> in
1: Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world, and guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in, Luckily, at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take-home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources.
0: All right, and we're back on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Adam Yanush. On Friday, I met with Jamie DeWolf. Uh, he is a slam poet that was up here um, to do a, a very not-typical um, slam poetry show at the Rio Theatre on Saturday. Uh, I met up with him at the theatre, and we, we sat in the front row. And uh, he told me about uh, his unique blend of not just poetry, but also uh, a sort of vaudeville-esque uh, mixture of, of um, you know stand up and some sort of naughty sexual uh, games that are performed on stage there's uh, short films and um, and just uh, an all around uh, blend of, of, uh, of good time fun and he uh, explain to me why and how all of this uh, came about, and then, of course, I couldn't um, couldn't help but ask him about uh, being the great grandson of L. Ron Hubbard. So, um, but first, we'll talk about his show, Lewd, Crude, and Under Control, or sorry, Out of Control, <laughs> not under control at all. Uh, that was at the Rio on Saturday, and then uh, we'll have part two where we talk more about um, L. Ron Hubbard. So first off, tell me about lewd, crude, and out of control.
6: Can you give a, a brief little summary of what it is? Well, um, it basically it's it's like a wild variety show um, that has everything from comedians and burlesque to slam poetry to beatboxers, and it's all sort of thrown together with this kind of twisted comedic edge. And we're also going to be showing some twisted kind of short films, um, and. I'm going to be doing a lot of kind of my darker, comedic, sexually salacious pieces. And uh, we're going to be doing a contest that's one of my favorites called What's Down My Pants, where uh, someone from the audience is blindfolded and various objects are put down my pants and they have to reach <laughs> in and identify said objects while blindfolded. And the audience is aware of what the objects are and they're they're usually quite disgusting and revolting. Uh, and uh, it's entertaining it's one of my <laughs> favorite games
0: okay so. now i'm still curious about how like why why this this kind of blend of and why the sort of more burlesque and more kind of sexual side
6: of things what where did that come about why not just a straight poetry thing i think to me it's it's honestly mm-hmm. it's almost more primitive in the roots of of actual entertainment mm-hmm. i think that that Vaudeville and sex and high lyricism and body burlesque, I think, have always really been paired together. And I think it may be, you know, only when like the last century or so that there's been this removal Mm -hmm. of the art. So, you know, back in the day, you'd pay a ticket and you would see a burlesque performer and then you'd see some scenes from a dramatic scene and then you would maybe see like a wacky circus performer and it was Mm -hmm. all sort of blended together. There was no real differentiation between high and low art. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think that that's always what I've aspired to do is really just, just put it all together because people are more open and also, you have a wider range of an audience who are who are, are more down with it um, mm-hmm. if you're hitting all these different deals you know I, mm-hmm. I never wanted to be an artist that was only respected in like an art gallery you mm-hmm. know um that I think that that really erasing that distinction between you know what is high art and what is dirty comedy and and kind of blending them all together i think um, is really more of an honest artistic experience mm-hmm. so I think that uh I think it's just old school really. Just, Old know. school, yeah. It's yeah, kinda... well, like, for instance, you know, like like every Shakespeare play has dick jokes, has like mm. literal straight up dumb, you know, dick jokes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's like all these kind of body punchlines in it. Right. And with I think that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare's, you know, lasted so long is because there isn't that really necessarily differentiation. You have like these high lyrical monologues and then you also have just ridiculous sexual Mm. puns and, you know, stuff like that. So it's really just kind of a blend and and not really alienating any one part of the audience and really having something for everybody. Mm.
0: Yeah, I guess people forget that part about Shakespeare, you know, it gets taught in school. So people think this is really high, (laughs) high class stuff and forget that there's all these,
6: this lewd humor in there. Well, it's funny because the teacher's always like, really go out of their way to like make Shakespeare cool by being like, you know, this is actually a sex
0: reference. Please,
6: Shakespeare's kind of dirty. You know, the kids are like, whatever, (laughs) you know, and the beasts with two back humping and, you know, things like that. And so, um, too often when you say the word poetry, people think of something that is very stale, that is very, Mm -hmm. um, behind a glass box that is very safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that something i 'm always interested in is is poetry is really just it, it shouldn't it shouldn 't be stale it shouldn 't be boring it shouldn 't be something that people cower away from it shouldn 't be obtuse and that 's something that has really only evolved in the last century or so um, before that, if you said you 're a poet, it was basically um, saying that you were an elevated lyricist that right. that you would be able to take a song and that you use language to make something more evocative. Yeah. Um, but it didn't mean that I was going to confuse you right. and just have a, you know, a, a barrage of line breaks and, and, mm-hmm. you know, complexity so that you don't quite understand what I'm doing. And, um, you know, most people, if you're like, let's go to a poetry reading, it kind of sounds like death, you know. <laughs> like it, it doesn't sound so like death. it doesn't sound like a fun, rocking night out. Yeah, yeah, You know, it sounds like something of like, oh, we're gonna sit there and sip Chardonnay and and, yeah, and yeah. listen yeah. attentively and like, you know, there's no reason that poetry and cannot then click be click
0: with your fingers at the end. Yeah, that it, <laughs> it, that
6: it can't be wild or it can't be anything else. And I think that I think that, uh, that hip hop understands that very, very well. That um, hip hop is is really just even more of I think of direct lineage of poetry than a lot, of, you know, a lot of the free verse and things like that that we right. have is that there, there's no reason for poetry to be safe. And so right. there's no reason for it not to be rowdy or for it not to be randy or, or, or just entertaining. You know Performance poetry should be, when you, when you step on a stage, there should be some element of, of you being aware of the audience and you trying to bring something to the audience.
0: So that's part one of my interview with Jamie DeWolf. When we come back, he'll tell us, about a one-man show that he's working on, all about Scientology. We'll be right back.
4: CITR 101.9 FM is proud to support the Enchanted Evenings concert series at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden in Vancouver. The series runs from July 9th to September 3rd every Friday evening. Come and enjoy a diverse array of world music while sampling food selected specifically to complement the music. Of the series' nine concerts, the first four are in July.
1: On July 9th, the series kicks off with the Birds of Paradox, Combining Western Chinese and Indian music, Delana Gail Bowen with her sultry blues, jazz, and gospel on July 16th, Ocean of Sound with their percussion-based music on July 23rd, and the Vancouver Piano Ensemble on July 30th.
6: Tickets are $20 and 18 for garden members. A season's pass is only $135 with a savings of $45.
4: For tickets and information, call 604-662-3207 extension 210. And visit VancouverChineseGarden.com for a full listing of upcoming concerts. The Enchanted Evenings Concert Series at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden in Vancouver, every Friday from July 9th to September 3rd.
0: Alright, we're back on the Arts Report. Now, when I asked Jamie DeWolf, um, or sorry, when I found out that he was related to the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, he's his great-grandson, I knew that I had to ask him about it, but I... I thought that he might not want to talk about it, that he might um, think, oh, no, here's another another, uh, media type who uh, just wants to talk to me about uh, Scientology and not about uh, what I'm into. But uh, as it turned out, he had quite a bit to say about Scientology, so much so that, in fact, he's working on a one-man show all about Scientology. Um, So here it is.
6: I... uh so I'm, I'm the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard. So my my grandfather was L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Okay. and um, my my mother was his daughter. And so um, my family has had a very contentious relationship with just Scientology in general. So my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., was a huge high-ranking member of the church and then him and his father had a huge falling out over money. Um, where my grandfather wanted more, and my you know Elron did not want to give any because he is a cult leader by nature, and that 's what you do is you take the money and uh so they had a huge falling out, and then my grandfather actually kind of like waged a public war against him, and it got really really bitter, really really nasty and um in either case that uh Um, so my, not, no one in my family is a Scientologist Mm. and pretty much I was the only person that ever went on record talking about it and actually doing performances against it. And they, Scientologists come after you with knives out and jackals howling like right away. I mean, basically I had one poem that I did about him in a tiny cafe that someone put on um, mp3.com or, or whatever, when the, whenever that was coming out, Napster, I think, um, when that stuff was coming out. And like within two weeks that they had, they were hunting me down that friends of mine were talking to were weird <laughs> sketchy people who were like asking about me at different cafes and performance spots. And they actually came to my house and um, they hunted me down because I wasn't even living with my ex-girlfriend at the time. But they told her that there were poets doing a show with me. And um, they came to my to my mom's house where I just was staying while I was going to find someplace else. And uh, they tried to say the same thing, that there were poets and doing a show with me. And, and they had this whole like lie and cover story. And, and it's just really sketchy. And, and you know, I, I have concerns that my phone may have been tapped as maybe a possibility. <laughs> oh so, I mean, one of the things that Scientologists do is that as soon as – as soon as you're to create any kind of a threat, is their their first line of defense is private detectives because they try to immediately smear you and just figure out what they can just use to discredit you, on you yeah. just immediately. And second, um, if not first, is a lawsuit, um, and they try to just sue the shit out of you. And I think that they were a little more hesitant in how they dealt with me because. One, I wasn't looking for money or anything like that. Like I didn't have like a book coming out or or whatnot. I was just saying what I what I felt, and that um that two is that uh uh they're they're just they're so aggressive in the way that they come at you that it's kind of difficult. Like it's like if you. If I wanted to really go after Scientology, like it would be uh, like a kind of another full-time job. Right. Um, Just and dealing with them would be a full-time dealing job. Dealing with them because Elrond was legitimately paranoid um, because people were actively actually after him. There were you – know, he had lawsuits. He had open criminal investigations. Um, pretty much his wife and a lot of his top ranking um, church members all went to jail for infiltrating the um, the state department the CIA, and this whole operation that they got exposed and uh, um, you know I mean he was on the run for a, a good portion of um, the later part of his life, you know, the the seventies and the eighties, and in the eighties, pretty much was in hiding for almost ten years. Um, so I mean, this guy was was literally created a worldview and a kind of a paranoid mindset to insulate himself and make it very difficult for anybody to permeate. But not only that, to to create a mindset within his. Believers that would immediately view anybody that approached Scientology with any kind of criticism whatsoever as that, like, you're an enemy that must be destroyed. And I think there are, they were um, a little more hesitant with me because of the fact that I'm directly related to them. Um, and even my grandfather is something that's often erased from a lot of their uh, their their kind of biographies of Elron. If you go to the L. Ron Hubbard like life tour in Los Angeles, which, which is this is one of the yeah. most hilarious things on the planet because it's it's literally like you go through this this like life exhibit that is all about why Elron Hubbard is like one of the the most charismatic and amazing, brilliant inventors of the last century and. It's just like the endless list of everything that this man has done in his life is is just so absurdly staggering of like, you know, he grew up on an Indian reservation. He traveled the Far East and studied oh, yeah. with freaking like Shaolin monks. Then he became like a dog fighter, World two, you know, World War he, II fighter pilot. He A's. sounds
0: like the most interesting man in the world. Yeah.
6: <laughs> then he's a submarine commander. Then he's a screenwriter for Hollywood. Then he's like a nuclear physicist, you know, and then he's a sci-fi author. Oh, wow. And then Scientology happened. You know, and uh and the truth of it is is that he was a fascinating character. I mean he, he was he was an amazingly charismatic and and just bizarre, you know, really just radiant kind of human being. And I, I give him a lot of props for the fact that this this smooth talking hustler, you know, was able to do and, and, and kind of talk his way into all these different situations and um, and basically just create his entire religion, you know, by himself. You know, and and really die a millionaire. I mean, he, he ended up living the life that he wanted to live. But, I mean, at a certain point, he had lost so much touch with reality that he started um, setting up his own booby traps. So, but there, I mean, there's, there's so much I want to say about Scientology. I've actually been commissioned to write a one-man show um, about Scientology really? and, and coupled with the irony that, though um, – you know, my great-grandfather was a co-leader. I was raised as a devout Baptist Christian. And to me, the parallels and the absurdity between Scientology and Christianity are all, you know, just, just very transparent and kind of blatantly pronounced. And the fact that Christianity isn't... Um, you know mocked with such derision as Scientology mm. to me is is a real statement on on how much people just accept and that you have people literally doing cannibalistic rites every Sunday of eating flesh and drinking blood and um and that's completely accepted. And whereas Scientologists who believe in fricking aliens are viewed as like, you know, Oh, they're a cult and yeah, they're, they're weird, weak. you know, but we believe in the talking snake and the magic fruit and the little magic <laughs> boat and the two of every animal on the <laughs> boat, boat and, <laughs> and the, uh, the little man who lives in a lake of fire. And like, you know I mean? All this stuff has just been so accepted for so long that why, you know, why, why, why not counter the two? So, um, yeah, the, I'm. I'm actually. am really determined to write this show. I just. Um, I just finished a feature film, and I really wish I had more time and more of a break. So when can we expect this one man show to, to? They want it in actually August. Um, so. Of this
0: year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
6: So I'm gonna see what's up with that because. <laughs> <laughs> Right now, like I, I literally just premiered my my feature film last weekend, and then I'm here, and then I get back, and then we have a lot of other short films and uh, other editing projects and films that um, we're getting, we're also finishing, and then I have like you know a little bit of open period, so I'm gonna really see where where I can get you know with the show because it is such a large subject to tackle. I'm I'm really I'm. I'll, just in some respects, I feel like I have to do it. Like, you know, no one else in my family will really do it. Um, I think it's a really compelling, bizarre story. And I think more people would be even more intrigued if they really understood, like, what this man's life was really like and just how kind of badass it is to, like, just completely fabricate your own religion. Like, that's fucking awesome. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that, that right is there. really awesome. People like, you know, they think I like hate on my great grandfather. And I'm like, no, I, I, I think he's awesome. Yeah. Like I would love to meet him and have tea with him and, and you know, kick so, it. So
0: you've never met him?
6: No, no. He died in uh, I mean, I think it was 1989, something like that, the late eighties. And, um, he died and he was in hiding in uh, yeah, no, never met him. Okay. So, awesome. Well, thanks very much for, uh, for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: So that was Jamie the Wolf, who was here with Lewd, Crude and Out of Control uh, at the Rio Theatre on the previous uh, Saturday night. Um, now, the voice that you heard um, laughing uh, there in the clip was uh, Natasia Schibinger, a.k.a. Sis, who is a very talented artist in her own right uh, and, and whose f- uh, short films were featured um, in the night's performances. You should uh, check out their website. It's uh, Tourettes Without Regrets.com, which is the name of the sh- a similar show that they do on a regular basis down in Oakland, California. And um, yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's a great website. So so check it out. It has lots of uh, videos as well that you can see of uh, of Jamie's work in action so uh we'll be right back uh but when we return we'll have uh the next in our series uh for the vancouver folk festival uh we'll talk to the malahat review and uh we will play um alex johnson's song voodoo which they came to the studio uh, to record acoustically so stay tuned for that
6: at Dunkin' Donuts, each and every radio show Is brewed fresh and served fresh at the peak of its flavor If you're a tough customer, only the taste of this radio show Will do, so go ahead, let Dunkin' Donuts make your radio experience Exquisite, indeed <laughs> <laughs> Dunkin'
4: Donuts, serving sweet treats from the pop underground Thursdays, noon to one
0: You're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. I'm Adam Yanush. So the Vancouver Folk Music Festival is coming July the 16th to the 18th at Jericho Beach Park. And in the next installment of our series, um, we have the Malahat Review, which will be at the Folk Fest. Now, the Malahat Review is a combination of uh, great individual bands that include Jeremy Fisher, uh, Said the Whale, Hannah Georges, and Aiden Knight. And they're doing uh, something called Bike to Work Tour this uh, July, which will lead up to the Folk Festival, uh, which includes them basically getting on their bicycles with all their instruments and going from spot to spot and doing a tour of um, Vancouver Island and, and surrounding areas. Um, on their bicycles, so first off, I have uh, Jeremy Fisher, who I spoke to on Skype because uh, moments before our um, our phone interview, he was in Montreal, he had his phone stolen from him by um, some jerk in a cafe who talked him up and was chatting away and then when he this fellow left, uh, Jamie realized or sorry Jeremy realized that his phone was missing so some clever handiwork, but it did not uh, stop us from having an interview. We uh, quickly put together um, a Skype a Skype conversation and um, and found out about the Malahat Review and their bike to work tour. So, so tell me about Malahat Review. How did it uh, How did
7: it come about? I guess the the easy way to explain it is that I, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Is take you know go out and do a tour with a bunch of other acts and the idea for um the malahat review just kind of came through my relationship with uh all you know hannah and uh said the whale and aiden and i I typed up this little like proposal to everyone to see if i could get people interested and I, i spent a long time i spent like 45 minutes composing this email to try and make it sound like fun and you know and not scare anybody off with the distances to ride and i was worried everyone's gonna be like you're crazy this is a stupid idea and you know within half an hour of me sending it everyone wrote back and thought it was a fun idea and we've just been going from there
0: perfect and tell me a little bit about the uh, logistics how is it going to work that you will bike from from spot to spot with all your instruments and all the members of the band how's that gonna happen
7: well, there are eight of us riding, eight of us in the band, and um, so we're all on bikes. We're all on. We'll be some of us will be on different bikes. I mean, I, I'll be carrying a bit on a big cargo bike uh, called an Extra Cycle, so I'll be carrying quite a bit of stuff. I'll be pretty well self-contained. Um, people have varying degrees of stuff on them. I think we're, we're going to be camping out, so we'll be carrying tents and sleeping bags and all that. But um we also have a support vehicle that's going to be hauling things like drums obviously and amps and bigger things that we can't carry on bikes yet. Mhm.
0: Now I understand you've done a cross country bike tour, is that right from Seattle to Halifax?
7: Yes. Yeah.
0: So you're you're obviously well sort of you're fit enough to to do it. Do you think the uh everyone else has uh has the stamina to
7: to make a go of it i think so i mean i am not like i'm not like a hardcore cyclist i'm a utilitarian cyclist i get around on my bike i don't own a car and i think that anybody in a reasonable state of fitness can go as far as their willpower will let them on a bike really i mean we're not doing any crazy uh distances we're not we're never going to do more than 100 kilometers in a day and i think there's only one uh, 100 kilometer day scheduled on the tour most of them are like you know 50 or 60 and with maybe a ferry ride in there so it, it's it's totally doable we're starting with baby steps and tell me a little bit about
0: the music um of course each of you have your own sort of acts and you'll perform your own music is there going to be some collaboration on stage as well
7: yeah, it's going to be all eight of us on stage at the same time playing each other's songs. So we've oh, each wow. we've each picked about, you know, 25 minutes, half an hour worth of our own material. And it, actually, that's what I was doing just before um, we got on the phone here, on the Skype, sorry. And uh, I was just going through their songs and, and learning them. So yeah, it's going to be totally different than coming to see any of us it, independently because... You'll hear, you know, eight voices singing, and you know I'm gonna. I think we're gonna bring a few different instruments along that we don't normally have, and try and make it something that is greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Awesome. Well, it sounds very exciting,
7: and I'm sorry about your phone, but thanks for uh, for
0: um, making this interview happen. Totally, man. Thank you. All right. Take care.
7: Bye bye. Bye.
0: So that was Jeremy Fisher. I also spoke to Tyler Bancroft of Said the Whale and um, I asked him about his part in uh, the Malahat Review as well as um, I had to, to uh, fact-check something that I learned about their song Camilo and you'll hear what that is. And I understand that all eight of you will be on the stage performing each other's songs. How will that work?
2: That will work uh, with lots of rehearsals <laughs> and rehearsals. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we're just, you know, just going to basically learn all each other's songs and, um, you know, some people might sing uh, someone else's song or, you know, we're, once we start the rehearsal process it's going to start to make a lot more sense but, um, you know, right now everyone's just busy kind of learning all, all the songs off recordings and stuff so we'll would, go from there.
0: Would you say that all of uh, everyone in the, the Malahat Review has a similar sound or... Um,
2: definitely, you know, a little bit of kind of folk... Influence just in that a lot of the songs are very simple um, and a lot of the songs are kind of, you know, catchy pop tunes. Um, so,
0: yeah. <laughs> the short answer is yes. <laughs> and uh, I have to ask you about the song Camilo because I um, did an acting workshop with some folks uh, from Langera who um, say that they go to school with a fellow named Camilo who claims that the song is about him.
2: Yeah, he is telling the truth. He, he goes to, is it Studio 58 Eight. Yeah. at Lang Garrett? Yeah, he he goes to that program and um, we just kind of met him through, he's a the, he's the brother of, of a friend of ours and uh, he used to come to our house parties and perform all these crazy magic tricks and, um, you know, win the hearts of drunk people all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I didn't even know him that well when I wrote the song about him, so it was a little bit weird, but I'm glad he accepted it graciously
0: and, and why did you was it because of the, the jolly good times he brought to, to the drunks with his magic
2: man I, I never know why songs <laughs> the way they do it just kind of you know those are the lyrics that came out and it just worked yeah
0: alright and tell me um, after this tour and uh, the folk festival what's in store for uh, Said the Whale
2: uh, we're doing an all ages tour of western Canada with uh, a band from Kelowna called We Are the City you're probably familiar with, um, and Aiden Knight uh, is also going to be joining us on uh, on most of the tour. So uh, just all ages from here to Winnipeg and back, and um, hitting most of the, the major markets there. It'll be good.
0: Will there be a, a Christmas uh, disc this year?
2: Um. Well, you know, we. <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a tradition. We've never, you know, it wasn't something we set out to do every single year, but um. I think it's too early to decide that. It's always a super last-minute thing, so we'll we'll have, we'll see. You know, mid-November, what happens?
0: And and is that the same goes for for your next CD? That when it happens, it happens.
2: It happens, it happens. Yeah. You know, obviously we're kind of writing as much as possible all the time, um, but we're also very slow songwriters. So, um, yeah, it'll it'll come out when it comes out.
0: Great. All right. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to uh, speak to us.
2: Yeah, man. My pleasure.
0: That was Tyler Bancroft of Said the Whale, who will be at the Vancouver Folk Music Festival, from, which is uh, July 16th to the 18th at Jericho Beach Park. And you can get more information on the festival at www.thefestival.bc.ca. What a great website, thefestival.bc.ca. Uh, all right, so we're almost nearing the end of our program. We're going to play um, Voodoo by Alex Johnson. But uh, first, a couple of uh, reminders of some events. Uh, last week on the show, we talked about uh, Rec Beach Bhutto, which is a special performance um, happening here at UBC at Rec Beach, and it will feature fully nude dancers clad only in white makeup who will perform on the shores of Rec Beach at 10:30 on Saturday, July the 10th. And that's being brought to you by uh, Kokoro Dance. And um, you should go to www.kokoro.ca because the tickets are uh, cheap. I believe they're $5 or, or by donation $5. So it's a great deal. And um, it's a really expressive uh, dance form, not just because they're naked, that's expressive, but, um, but it's very much sort of anti-dance. It's anti-ballet. It's, um, it's sort of a reaction to the sort of strict rigidness of ballet. So it's very free form, it's very uh, abstract and very different. So, um, so there's that. Uh, all right, without further ado, here is Voodoo. Um, acoustic performance uh, done by Alex Johnson When she was in the studio with her brother uh, Brendan uh, Johnson And uh, they, they rocked it out here And uh, it was a pleasure having them So I hope you enjoyed uh, The show uh, Please uh, subscribe to our uh, podcast Which you will find at citr.ca Under, um, shows, under shows You can find the Arts Report uh, podcast And you can subscribe And it will fall into your iTunes um, Inbox uh, just by itself, whether you can, you're able to hear it live or not. And if you have any uh, feedback for us, we love to get feedback. Um, the email is arts at C-I-T-R dot C-A. Uh, Drop us a line and also follow us on Twitter. We are C-I-T-R underscore arts report. C-I-T-R underscore arts report. And uh, that's all for the show this week. Join us uh, next week for another exciting show here's uh, Voodoo to take us away.